For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the Fat Rat, who's number one in gaming music. He's got five and a half million YouTube subscribers, billions of streams, and 21,000 Discord members. Mr. Fat Rat, glad to have you here. Thanks for having me, Bob. Okay. You know, a lot of people listening to this are going to be unfamiliar with you and your music, so let's start from the beginning. Why the Fat Rat? What's that name about? It's a typical, like, online name that I used for gaming. Um, it's from my nickname in school. So I was really small at school, and I was doing kung fu to, to defend myself. And then first, people called me after the uh, after Splinter, which is the master of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then they, after a week or two, they found this was way too friendly as a nickname. So they simply called me Rat in German, Ratte. And uh, yeah, that name stick with me for years. And so when I started playing online games, I simply picked that up and called myself the Fat Rat in online games for about 10 years. And then when I started putting out my own music, I was a music producer a long time before, but when I started putting out my own music, just put it on SoundCloud, I used my online name, which I used in like online games. And now I, I'm still stuck with it. <laughs> okay. It's a good name, but the rat, in terms of fat, you're not fat in the least. Why the fat rat? Uh, just because it sounded good when I chose the online name. Like, you know, like you choose an online gaming name it's not you don't think about it that later on you might have like 10 million followers uh, who might like ask you about why did you pick the name it's just you know it just sounds good and you you just pick it okay getting some other basics down i'm not sure i'm sure i'm gonna get the pronunciation wrong you're in good again where are you in germany right now oh yeah in, in göttingen yeah it's uh in the very middle of germany which is pretty much in the middle of nowhere because all the big cities like Hamburg's in the north, Berlin is the north, east and Munich's in the south. And yeah, it's a little bit like in the US where the, everything, most stuff happens on the coast, you know, and uh, in the very middle, there's not that much going on. I mean, at least in Germany, maybe still way more in the US. 
Um, yeah, and so, yeah, very much in the middle of nowhere. We're like, all the big cities are few hours drives away. But how many people live in Göttingen? Uh, 130,000. Okay, and you grew up there? Yes, I grew up there, and my wife also grew up here. And that's the reason why we're here, because we have all, uh, our parents are here. So we have a daughter and her grandparents. She has all the grandparents very close here. and That's pretty cool. Okay, how old are you today? 42. Okay, so what was the environment in music and life with for you growing up? Uh, it wasn't it wasn't really challenging uh, because my mom had a music school and I had some talent in music, but I was really quickly the best in the music school um, because, you know, when I was like 14, 15 years old, whenever there was a concert, I was the last act to perform um, because I, w I was the, the person there who was the longest there and I was like the best player. But then when I moved to Munich later on, when I was starting to study, I learned that I wasn't half as good as I thought I was because then I had some actual competition. Okay. You know, the average person in America has not been anywhere. So tell us a little bit more about Germany because you spend time in the States. What's the difference between Germany and the States from your viewpoint? <laughs> it's a really good question it's a really good question the, the funny thing is whenever like the grass always green on the other side right um so when i moved to to uh, los angeles where i lived for three years i realized what was so good about germany now when you ask me the question everything that comes to mind is how awesome the usa is and what are the problems here um so germany please forgive me when i'm like a little bit negative now but um, what I love about the U.S. is that people are way more into doing things and acting and less into planning everything to death, which at least in the which is probably great when you're in engineering, like when you're building planes or you're building big structures or whatever. It's great when you have zero tolerance to failure. But in the entertainment industry, you have to do stuff and simply try and failure is an option. And that's something Let's say failure is an option. I think that's a big part of the U.S. People just do things. They just try stuff. They move forward. And in Germany, everybody's always afraid to, to make a mistake. And people do rather nothing than making a mistake. So I think that's a huge difference in the mentality. Okay. From our viewpoint, it appears that uh, Germany, maybe with France, certainly runs the European Union. What is the mindset of Germans today? You know, we can talk about, I don't want to start labeling different countries, whatever, but somehow are seen as more lazy, some as more economically forward. And we think the perception in the U.S. is that Germans are very precise and at the bleeding edge of uh, technology and engineering. That's where the BMWs come from, the Mercedes, the Porsches. You know, the average person... If you're a slacker in Germany, can you get away with it? Because, you know, or what is the general person in Germany like? Yeah, yeah. Um, so first of all, uh, don't be afraid to hit me with like uh, 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 stereotypes. So I, I, it's totally no problem. Uh, so sp speak freely. Um, uh I think you can get away pretty good as a slack. So Germany, Germans are not about hard work. I wouldn't say that. It's more about uh, precision. I think that's that's a good point. Um, 
because, uh, yeah, like I said before, I think it's this being afraid of making failure, being very, very accurate. That's the good side of it. The bad side is that it often slows down things a lot, right? So when you want to do something in the US, you say, hey, let's do this. And everybody's like, cool, let's try it. And in Germany, everybody's, well, yeah, but what could go wrong? Let's let's figure out everything that could go wrong and make sure nothing goes wrong. And um, if we are afraid... Oh, there's actually a very good specific example I can give you in the music industry because I'm like most of my business contacts are still in the US. So when I, for example, when I worked with the management in the US, we had a call how we want to do the the deal, right? And we said, okay, this is how we're going to work. And then we started, right? We didn't even sign agreement. And this was about like thousands, thousands of dollars from the start. But when I signed a small a cappella group in Germany and we wanted to release something, they insisted on written agreements that we would send back uh, via mail, like not email, but physical mail. So otherwise it's not, because otherwise it's not safe um, uh, uh, legally, right? So you have to send like letter agreements all over the world. And my business partner in the US was still involved. So we had to, to send it from Germany to the US and then back to Germany and then to everybody to sign it. It was like no, almost no money involved, but they were so scared that something could go wrong. And this is, I think that's a pretty good example how the mentality is different. Germans, very everything has to be done right. It's like the typical image that people are standing at night at the green, at the red traffic light, right? The the Where the pedestrians cross and it's red light. So they stand for a minute and wait till the light turns green. There's no car around. Nobody's around whatsoever, but they're still going to stand at the red light. That's, I think that that's German. It is. It's a typical okay. thing. Not everybody does it, but... That's how people are here. I'm older than you are, and I remember when Europe, most of the radio stations were state-controlled. So at this point, and certainly electronic music, many people believe, started in the Midwest of the United States, but really took hold in Europe. So the average person, and it's hard in today's digital era, and you're old enough to know, have seen the transition. In Germany, is music consumption driven by the radio? or other ways, or has there been a transition in your lifetime, and what kind of music do people listen to? Honestly, I don't even know that much about it, because I have my very own space. Um, I think it's very, like, big influence, I th think, is still TV, but then there are those subcultures, like German rap became a big thing in the last couple of years, just like you know, in the US as well, like the rappers there was like huge comeback sort of thing after all the EDM stuff. And that the same thing happened in Germany. But I don't even know exactly where that came from, because I have like, like I said, I have my very own almost a bubble where I live in, where I have like my music world. Um, I listen to the radio here sometimes, um, but I'm not so familiar with the audience in Germany. What's important is my audience is 2% German. It's 98% is the rest of the world. So I, it's artist wise, I'm not a German. I, I mean, I live here and I'm from here, but like my, as an artist, I have as much to do with Germany as, as I have to do, even more, way less to do with Germany than I have to do with Vietnam, China, USA, and Mexico. Okay. When you were growing up, rave culture started to be something in the US in the 90s. Was that something that was happening in Germany when you were growing up and were you a participant? Yes, 
Absolutely. So we had Love Parade in, in Berlin, where there were like over a million people coming to Berlin to join the Love Parade. For those who don't know, it was like trucks with sound systems on it and making a huge parade. And the trucks were so loud that whenever you was you were like somewhat close to one truck, you could only hear that one truck. Uh Yeah, so, uh, yeah, and I went to a couple of those parades. Uh, that was, the, those were the raves back then. It's not, not so much the festival, but it was a lot of those parades and it was a ton of fun. I was like 18 years old at the time, really drunk. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Okay. You call yourself the number one gaming music artist. What exactly does that mean? Well, the gaming music is simply the term that helps people to find music that's similar to mine. In the very beginning, I had people asking me, hey, what's the like the music, what you're making? What is it? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's not really EDM. You cannot call it EDM. EDM is like a certain, you know, sound, a certain culture and everything. It's kind of close to that. But it's not really that. But then I stumbled upon gaming music mixtapes on YouTube and I found, okay, this is like the kind of music that I'm making and also my music is all over those mixtapes, right? They often started with my song. They, they still do. If you bring up a gaming music mix on YouTube, it's often the first song is the Fat Rat. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm like, okay, cool, then that's kind of the the niche or the genre that describes my music that simply describes it best in which the most functional you know, for people to understand kind of what it is because it's music it's not music from video games it's simply music that grew out of the video, ga video game culture and it's also yeah it's also the term where you can find music that is somewhat similar to what i'm doing okay so what is different in terms of sound between gaming music and edm um gaming music it's kind of more like electronic it's not so much made for dancing right the gaming music always has uh, i mean edm always has to be danceable right because you play it on festivals you play it in clubs that's what it's made for and uh gaming music it's more for listening because what people do with it they play it in the background especially when they're playing like competitive games like dota 2 or league of legends or stuff like that okay as i say A lot of people are not that experienced in this world. So let's talk about music in actual games that people play multiplayer online or they buy discs or whatever. Do you license your music to those commercial games? Yeah, I do that as well. But that's not my primary uh, primary uh, thing that I'm doing. That happened because my music became so big in the space. So a couple of those big games reached out to me and said, "Hey, I want to. We want to have your music in our games. Like it's a title song for the actual season." So for people who are not in the gaming space, like games today, it's not like it's not like a DVD that you buy. So you buy the thing one time, then you play it through, and then it's over. It's more this term games for uh, uh, games as a service. So a game is a continuously developing product or space. So it means, for example, so those games today, they have seasons. It's like, okay, every uh, three months or every six months, there's like new levels, new characters, and they also then have a new title song. So for example, they Rocket League, for example, licensed my song as a title song for the new season, and then I think recently did it again. And then Dota 2, I made a music pack. That, that was the 
only time where I made music specifically only for a game, uh, which is then not, I got didn't get paid for it directly, but it's an in-game item that you can buy. So the game itself is for free. And the business model is that you can buy stuff in the game. And one of the items that you can buy in the game is my music pack. So the standard music that you that plays when you play the game gets exchanged by music that I made. And you pay, I don't know, four dollars to to get that. And then I get a share of those four dollars. Is that a real business or is that really small? I my I can talk numbers. So the first month I think was no, I, I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm going to talk numbers, but it's a, it's a. But why not talk it, numbers? Is we're not no, recording here? I, no, 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 no. I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed from the from Valve side from the game okay. developer. I just remembered. Uh, no, but it's a real business. But it's a real business. Okay. I could, I, I could, I could live a mu- I could live a year from what I made in the first month. This is just from selling packs within the video game. Exactly. There's no license. Okay. No. And the what kind of deal if since they're not paying you up front and you were talking like four dollars for a pack, how many different songs would they get? Would they all be yours? And how would the four dollars be split? Uh, once again, I'm not hundred percent sure if I'm allowed to talk about that uh, uh, about the split. Um, so the actually it's a standard standard deal. Um, it's just they have a a lot of different creators. Um, so not everybody can place his or her item in the game, but they do this quite a bit. So there, there's a community or a lot of people who say, hey, I want to place stuff in the game uh, or sell stuff in within the game. And um, yeah, it's just a standard agreement, which, and it's, it's processed through their, through Steam. So Steam is like iTunes for uh, video games sort of thing. So it's a, a platform within that you can like you can buy games, you can download the games, and there you have a community aspect to it, and all those things. And it's done within that platform. So when I want to view the statements, I open Steam, which is actually the platform that I also use when I want to buy games. So it's all done within that platform. Okay, is Steam? Because I, you know, maybe I don't have it straight. Is Steam a platform or also technology? Are the ga- games written a specific language that Steam provides, or Steam is just a hosting place? Um, no. So, tons of different games are, um, are are, are used in Steam and like um, distributed through Steam. So I would. I would call it like the distribution platform. Yeah, it's a software that you install. So you, you say, okay, I want to download Steam. Then you install the software on your PC PC or your Mac. And then you create a user account. And then you have like no games in your library. And then you buy some games or you download some free games. You're like, okay, I want to have this game and that game. You download it. And then it keeps the game. So originally, I think it was developed for, from Valve. They developed games themselves. So Valve owns Steam, but they also develop games. And they developed it originally just as an update client. So just so you do it within the platform, and then it updates automatically whenever a game update happens. Um, but then they started plugging in other games. So other people said, hey, can we maybe distribute our games through your platform for updates and stuff? And then they did this. And I think by now, what's funny is I think Valve is the company in the U.S., that has the biggest profit per uh, employee. 
in the in the entire U.S. I think they have like 120 employees, and they have like billions of profits. Okay, so your music pack, which is sold on Steam, is it sold directly by Steam, or does it go through the person who constructed the game that you gave the music to for free? Uh, no, because uh, Valve the the owners of steam they also developed they are also the owners of dota 2 so it's one thing so okay. it's one company in this okay. case let, let me just put it a different way yep. theoretically could you independently put a music pack on steam uh no not in dota 2 that wasn't uh, that wouldn't be possible okay and you know uh in many walks of the music business other than the major labels certainly indie labels it's a 50 50 deal is that similar here is it better is it worse it's a little worse but it's close okay just because we're this deep in how often do they account uh uh monthly monthly okay so for okay so the you know the and you feel you're getting an honest accounting yeah yeah absolutely okay (laughs) okay let's go back to this licensing thing you give the music to the game like doja 2 do you ever charge to license yeah uh not uh not dota 2 because it's this model um but i do a lot of or my company and it's not me directly but my wife who run who manages me and runs all my business stuff and my cousin actually it's very very family uh they do a lot of licensing into mobile games for example and this uh, they use it for a year and they pay me a, a yearly fee to use the song okay but from the beginning of your public life you talk about the ability to license now let's use youtube as a specific situation Yes, if you want to use a major tune, legally you might jump through hoops. But what do we know? There's content ID on YouTube such that the creator ultimately gets paid. So what exactly is your model? It's just you don't have to ask me to record it, but I get paid by YouTube or I don't get paid by YouTube. What's going on there? Oh, no, on YouTube, I have a different model, which is uh, kind of unique, which is that I uh, it's free to use on YouTube for everybody. So you, if you have a YouTube channel, you can use my music there and monetize the video and keep 100% of the revenue. I, I, I'm not going to touch any of the revenue on YouTube. Wow. So your main avenues of revenue are what? Uh, it's my own YouTube channel, which has uh, around a, bi- a million plays per day. Um, I I mean I'm what, what's my, the what's the net on a million plays to you? Um, I have to think. Uh, I think I think. Uh, I think. Well, it's it's my. Well, how much do you make a month from YouTube? From yeah, your yeah, channel? Okay, yeah, yeah. That's I think it's that twenty five k around that a month. Yeah. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you have your own monetized YouTube channel. Yeah. That's one stream of revenue. Anything else? Yeah, then of course are the uh, DSPs, right? Spotify, Apple Music, uh, iTunes still, sales and those things. That's the that's by far the biggest chunk. Um, because uh, so so on YouTube, I think it's roughly it's roughly 1K for a million plays around that. And on Spotify, okay. my revenue is not that good because it's very international. So when your only ba- when your plays all come from the US, you make more per play than me. For example, makes a lot of plays in Vietnam. You just don't make that much money in Vietnam per play. Um, but there, I roughly say like overall DSPs for me, it's million plays on Spotify is around like five k per month. I oh, know it's I uh, know per month uh, like million plays is f- around five k overall DSPs for me. Okay, so you have YouTube, and you have the DS, uh, traditional music streamers. You have packs on Steam. Any other avenues of uh, revenue? Uh, yeah, licensing 
of course, like licensing into different games. So not only not only the packs, but the, a lot of mobile games are licensed into a lot of um, uh, uh, mobile like tiles hop, like jumping games and stuff like that. Publishing on all the stuff. Um, then uh, what's that? It's uh, um, uh, neighboring rights. Those are the big the big ones. Okay. So most of your revenue is from traditional music streaming? Yeah. Okay. So is it how did you let people know that not only could they use their music on YouTube without asking, that they could keep the revenue? I simply told them when I started and also when I started it was way more common that people would simply use stuff because it was just in the start of content ID when those things came up on YouTube and up to that point sim people would simply start using stuff and then later on content ID kicked in but it didn't kick in for my stuff so a lot of people already used it and they realized they got a lot of copyright claims but not on my music so they were like okay cool maybe I should keep using this guy's music. You have any idea the volume of clips and and uh, plays on YouTube that are using your music? Uh, uh, so we made an estimate recently based on some other people's numbers that we know. Um, so our approximate is the mo at the moment is that is like 25 million videos using my music at the moment on YouTube. So it's not that's not played as a number of videos. Right. So anybody else doing what you're doing in terms yeah. of giving their music away for free and how big are they on YouTube? Um, yeah, there are a couple of artists, especially like, especially in the gaming music scene. It's sort of a common thing um, simply because it helps you grow so much. People realize that because when you're coming from the video game culture, a huge and free promotion tool is that people use your music in the background and then, other people hear the music and they're like, oh, that's amazing. What's that? And then they search for it and they, they find the music and then they play it. So, yeah, there are other people doing the same thing. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. So your mother ran a music school. What did your father do? <laughs> he was originally a farmer, but not anymore when I was born. He was an independent inventor, like inventing uh, machines stuff. <laughs> but he was never successful. Okay, and are your parents still alive? Yeah, yeah. My father's 86 now, and my mom is almost, she is going to get 70 in, in a week, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, but they're fine. They're also together, and they're, I have an amazing family, I have to say. Okay, and I'm, how many kids in the family? Uh, so, I have a daughter together with my wife. And no, I have no, 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 no. Your parents, how oh, many yeah. kids do they have? Uh, yeah, I have one brother. He also lives in Göttingen. He works for a uh, U.S. company. He's an animator also in the gaming space. So he, he animates uh, dinosaurs for a game, Ark Survival Evolved, which is also a really huge game. Uh, but he's doing it here from, from Göttingen. And yeah, he has also a daughter together with his wife. Okay, so you're growing up. And when do you start playing music? I grew up making music. So the first thing that I actually remember is me sitting on my mom's lap while she was playing piano. So she did this. She was playing the piano and I was two years old sitting on her lap and I would start hitting random keys. And at first she wanted to keep me from doing it. She was like, hey, no, I'm, go I'm playing piano. You, you don't hit the keys. But I kept 
you know, hitting keys. And at some point she, she thought, hey, I'm actually doing it for my son. So why not let him play stuff? But then after like a week or two, she realized that the keys I was pressing would fit to what she was playing. And I can still remember how like she was blown away that I was like pressing keys that would fit to what she was playing. And that's how I learned music. So I really learned it like a language growing up. And I like I literally cannot think of a time where I was not making music. Okay, so what instruments did you play? Um, so piano was my my main instrument. I played a lot of other instruments. So I started a little bit with a the flute, then trumpet. I really liked a little bit of violin, double bass, guitar, and a little bit of like vocal lessons and stuff. But piano was always the, the main thing. Okay, and you can read music, I assume. Yeah, to a certain degree. I'm a little bit out of practice, but yeah, I can read music. Okay, now you talk about going to Munich. How old again are you when you go to Munich and what school are you going to attend in Munich? Uh, I was 21, I think. Yeah, I was 21 and I go. I went to the SAE, which is School of Audio Engineering. It's like an international school for audio engineering. Okay, but you said, okay, you, you know, some of the terms may not be identical. You graduate from high school, which in America is traditionally 18. Then yeah. you, go, you go to university or what yes. do you do after you're 18? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's uh, SAE School of Audio Engineering. So I, I got a bachelor's degree there. And uh, so I'm a Bachelor of Recording Arts, Honors Recording Arts. Okay. <laughs> but you said once you got to Munich, you thought that people were much better musicians than you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I after uh, six months, I went into a uh, fraternity. And it was a music or it is a music fraternity, which was amazing. Uh, they had a huge house in the middle of Munich. Munich's incredibly expensive, and it, it's it's like a, it's like a, I don't know, it's a utopia kind of for a musician because it was in the middle of Munich, and they had a, a big big rooms with pianos, and I could play like grand pianos to use for free all the time whenever I wanted. I could, I, I, uh, I moved into the fraternity there, so that was absolutely amazing. But there were a lot of other musicians as well and that's what i talked uh, talked about it was like oh wow um i'm not half as good as i thought i was okay you graduate you get your degree what's the next step um even before i finished the degree i had the a part was a um internship internship and so i took an internship at, at a uh company called Unicate Music and that was a publishing company and a music production company and they had this artist called Lou Bega who did oh, number, yeah. number 5 yeah and so that was 2001 so that was just like one and a half years ago so they, they, they were like the biggest thing and I was like okay this is my chance because I knew I wanted to become a music producer that was my goal um, so I simply worked my ass off there like I worked like crazy and was like I was an intern first, then, and like a year after they hired me as an intern, I was like head of the entire music production there. And I run the production. Uh, yeah, that was the next step. And I can tell you a lot about that, that company and what I learned there, if you want. But what did you learn? Um, how to, like, how not to, what not to do when you have success. Um, the, the company, so the, the owner of the company, he was not creatively involved in Mambo Number no. 5. 
But after the big success, you thought like, oh, I want to be like the mastermind. I want to be the creative chief. Uh, so he took things in his own cre hands creatively, and that simply ruined the entire the entire process. It killed the creativity. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's like no value or very little value to the the brand today. And there uh, there wasn't the, like a long time career that developed out of Mambo Number no. Five because that idiot simply ruined everything. Okay, so where do you go from that production company? Um, I was there for like four years and then I, um, worked like crazy 14 hours a day and made like 500 bucks per month. That's what they paid me. And then I decided I want to go independent. So I started, I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm not going to do like, or what's not independent. Like I want to build, start my own business, become an entrepreneur, Which didn't go so well at first because the one thing that made me money was and was making ringtones for um, Siemens. So those mobile phones, when you would buy a mobile Siemens mobile phone back in 2006, the ringtones that were on the phone were, uh, I wrote those ringtones and produced those ringtones. And that was the one source of income that I had. And then BenQ had bought Siemens, I think in 2006, maybe or so. And then 2000, no, I think 2004, maybe. But they, they let the mobile part of it, they let it go bankrupt on purpose. Because they only wanted the technology and they wanted to lay off all the employees and everything. So that's that happened exactly at that time. So they still owed me a lot, uh, a lot of money. So one month after I decided I want to start my own business, that happened. So I had like I started with seven thousand euros in debt, and I had like no income. So that was my my start at that time. Keep going down the narrative. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and then it was just you know existential crisis. And <laughs> thinking about if music production was the right thing, because everybody around me, you know, people finished, like all the people that I knew, they were like finishing their their uh, university and everybody was like starting families. And I was just bankrupt, basically, uh, almost like my parents had me had to help me out. And then I just I, I there was one guy that I knew from the company and he said, hey, I also want to go away. And do you have some music like I want to? Um, could help you. And I just played him a couple of songs and he, for one song that I had produced, he found me a deal at Contour Records, which is a German dance label. Uh, it flopped. But he got me another deal for another record and that's how we started. And then we founded a, a, a company together. And that was a good thing because I, so I was producing a lot of dance music and I was doing like everything that I could simply get my hands on, like every job, anything that I could do, any production, weirdest stuff. So still ringtones. Then we had those big ringtones, like r people would sell ringtones on television. That was a thing. So I did that. Um, and for example, publishing company of that owned, uh, take me home tonight by share, for example. For Germany, they hit me up and said, Hey, you know, Cascada is like a big thing at the moment. This Eurodance is blowing up. Can you make a Cascada ish version of Take Me Home Tonight? And that's what I did for example. And then they paid me like 800 bucks or stuff like that. So I would do all those things and slowly, you know, make my way into the business. And then I signed a publishing deal with Chrysalis back then. I think that was 2009 already. And we decided that we want to reach out to the US because the dance 
music thing was blowing up and we had like at that time it was possible from munich to get in touch with island in new york and you know atlantic records and all because everybody was like searching for european producers they were like oh like dance music's blowing up and like you know the hip-hop producers they were not there qu quite yet they learned so quickly the u.s producers but there was like the small window of time where they were not there and we already had the sound um yeah and then we <laughs> in 2009 what we did is we booked kma studios in braille building in new york for a week for i don't know ten thousand dollars or something like that without having any session and then we we reached out to i don't know which one it was like one of the uh maybe atlantic or so and said hey we're in like we're in new york we're in kma studios like you know doing sessions and we still have like one spot open do you have any artists that you want to send around and they will do yeah okay cool uh, yeah i have like i don't know winter gordon for example uh, maybe you could do a session with her and then we would go to the next like to island saying hey by the way we're in kma studios and we're working with atlantic on their artists you know but we have still one spot open and maybe do you have an artist yeah and that's that's how we did it and then we had like the entire schedule booked um in kma studios and then we went to new york and wrote a lot of songs i think none of that ever got <laughs> released but We that was the first time I came to the US, uh, almost 30 years old, but it was amazing. And it, like the yeah, we realized how different the US mentality is, especially in the entertainment industry, and how how quickly things can happen there compared to Germany, where every it's so slow here. I'm not, I have like almost nothing to do with the German entertainment industry, but I I remember how baffled i was and how amazed i was when it came the first time to the u.s and things happened especially in new york it happened so quick it was just crazy yeah and then i was in new york for uh i don't know eight weeks or so so we did other sessions and you know socializing and everything and i was yeah we originally we had planned to fly back but then we had a we had a an art island he said he wanted us to work with his artist and we flew he flew us to los angeles And then I was there for three weeks. And then I decided in the end of 2009, almost missed the flight back on Christmas, <laughs> uh, but made it. And then we decided, okay, we're going to move to LA and see how far we can get there. And that's the next thing that we did. So what happened in LA and how long were you in LA? Three years. And yeah, learning, learning. So I had amazing, ama like, I mean, it's creatively, it's, incredibly professional i was in the studio with people like tovlo uh bb rexa um even bogart uh, who wrote like halo for beyonce with um the underdogs who are like also like justin bieber beyonce and uh, amazing yeah a lot of amazing people i learned so much from it but i also get like pissed or pissed but annoyed by the music industry like how how political it is and how Especially what bothered me is like how many people started talking into my music. Like, I, you know, <laughs> I put so much like work and thought into it. And then you have like the artist has an opinion, which is legit. And then the manager, uh, artist manager has an opinion. And then the A&R has an opinion. And then the label head and this person and that person and the publisher. And everybody's like, hey, let's change this. Let's change that. Can you do this? Can you do that? And then at the end, you're like, everything's kind of ruined. And... That really was annoying. And also that some of the best songs I thought I had were never released just because they, 
didn't fit anywhere, but I still thought they were amazing songs. And some th songs where I thought like, oh, this is not that good, were actually released because they were re done with the right people at the right time, the right studio, you know. Um, yeah, that was the time, 2011. Oh, actually, it's it's now exactly 10 years ago. 2011, summer 2011, there I thought, okay, I'm just going to put out some ideas that I have by myself. I'm just going to put it okay, on okay, SoundCloud. Be before you go there, yep. you moved to L.A., How do you end up working with these artists? Sheer hustle or does somebody else make the arrangements? You come to L.A., you don't really know many people. Yeah, like I said, so we did this this move that I said in New York with KMA Studios. Um, and that was our, like, you know, that was our step into the industry. So we started knowing people then. And like I said, we had this... A&R from Ireland who flew us uh, to LA. He also, the second time he said like, hey, I want you guys in LA. Actually, now that I remember, the second time I wanted to come to the US, we wanted to come to New York. We also already had the flights booked. And I think three days, be no, there was this volcano thing, if I remember correctly. We couldn't fly. And then the flights were delayed. And in that time, we had the call from Ireland and they said, hey, we want to work you to work with our artists in Los Angeles. So then we canceled those flights. And they flew okay, two Angeles. questions. When you say <laughs> we, who are you yeah. talking about and who was in LA? And B, how were you making money in this period uh, in Los Angeles? Yeah. Uh, so we, that, that was the the guy that I talked uh, about who like brought me those first uh, dance deals like with Contour Records when I started uh, starting my own business. So I had this guy, he, he was working at the the company where Lou Bega was also signed, the publishing company. He moved away from that company as well. And we started our own business. And he was, he was the person uh, that kind of did all the like management stuff. So it was one company, but basically I was doing the music production. He was doing like all the rest. Um, yeah, and we just did it together. How'd you make money in LA? Yeah. Um, well, actually, we had a huge, uh, pretty huge hit in Europe uh, exactly at that time. Uh, <laughs> one of those ringtones that we did, um, it was it was released as a full song. It went really well in France. And it then was released as a full song. And it became, it got a number one spot in France for 13 weeks. Um, and it was best selling single of the year in France. And that was one of the things. And then we still had the publishing deal with the advance and stuff like that. And then we had like cuts, a couple of cuts, like we some K-pop songs. And then uh, some, I think it was also Atlantic Records. So, so some, some smaller placements and stuff. Okay. So you wake up one day and you say you're going to do your own music. Continue from there. Yeah, so it was it started kind of a side project. So it was just it was more a creative thing. And for me it also important. I was I was annoyed by how complicated everything was including well, no, that came a little bit a bit later. But that that started then that it was annoyed by how complicated it was for people to listen to my music. But yeah, it started that I I simply put out an EP on SoundCloud and I sent it to a couple of blogs and then I went into holidays and then I came back and was I, I I'm curious to see how many plays I have. And I had 73 plays into uh, on the entire EP uh, over two weeks. So that wasn't too crazy. <laughs> But uh, so what I did then is I hit up people on SoundCloud directly, personally. 
you could wait. How did it work on SoundCloud? You could see, like, you could open up an artist, like let's say Skrillex, who was like blowing up at the time. You could open up Skrillex, and then it would show you people who would listen to Skrillex. It would show those profiles. So I would search for some artists, for example, Porter Robinson here, like a little bit similar size Zed at that time as well, similar to the stuff that I was doing, Complextro. Uh, so I would look the, up those people and see who was following them and then send them a personal message. Also, a, a lot of those were pro producers as well. So I would listen to their songs and say like, hey, I listen to your song. I like this. And or maybe you could do this different. I have those ideas. Maybe you want to check out my songs. So it was like really doing this. I would like hit up 10 people per day. And a lot of people got back to me like, hey, your music's amazing. Thanks so much for reaching out. And that was where I felt like, hey, I'm not like doing annoying advertisement. Uh, what I'm doing is like, actually, people enjoy it when I reach out to them. And one of those artists, he sent my music to his manager and to another uh, band. The other band was The Knox. I don't know if you know them. It's like an indie band from New York. And his manager. So The Knox reached out to me saying, hey, your music's amazing. Can you do a remix for us? And then this manager, who was tour manager for The Knox, but he was also manager for another artist, he also reached out to me. He said like, hey, I want to manage you. Your music's amazing. I think I could do something for you. So I did this remix for The Knox. And back then, Hype Machine was a big thing. Uh, I don't know if like probably remember like was the music block chart sort of thing. And that remix became immediately went top 10 in the Hype Machine charts. Okay. How did it go top 10? Um, so the manager that, that, that wanted to work for me, I think he brought up one blog article. Um, and so a blog wrote about it and then it simply clicked with the people. People liked it. They click like, you know, and then the algorithm pushes it up. And it took a while. I think there there's a small time window where you can get into the hype machine charts. I think it's only three days, and after three days, you drop out automatically. So every song you see saw on the hype machine charts or still see is not older than three days. So yeah, that happened. And then this manager say, "Hey, you can do a remix for uh, Foster the People, who just blew up with Pumped Up Kicks." Um, and so I did the remix. And I wanted to give it to, like, sell it to foster the people. But I still had my business partner. And my business partner said, okay, we, we are ru ruining our prices if you give away the remix cheap. So he asked for $4K, $4,000. And the label said, no, we're only going to pay $500. And so that didn't work. So we agreed that I could simply put out the remix for free. That's what I did. And it immediately hit number one on the hype machine charts. Um, it simply, some blogs wrote about it and simply it clicked with the people. It's just kind of went viral on its own. And funny story is um, that back then, a I got a message on SoundCloud uh, from a guy called Billy. And he said, hey, I'm having this new channel on YouTube. It's called No Copyright Sounds. And um, can I upload your remix there? Is it, uh, that okay for you? And I was like, yeah, cool, no problem. I looked at the channel and had like 300 subscribers or something. And it was one of the driving forces behind the channel in the beginning to, to grow that channel. And the channel, I think, now has over 30 million subscribers. And that's the channel where Alan Walker and a lot of like huge... Also, huge gaming artists came from, and is uh, yeah one of the biggest YouTube channels now. They 
they really started with my music. Yeah, then I made another uh, bootleg remix for uh, Levels for Vici, which also went number one hype machine. I made another remix for Gautier, uh, the somebody that I used to know, also bootleg remix. Um, yeah, then then I got remix requests from uh, Static Revenger and from Chris Brown, for example. So I made an official remix for Chris Brown. And that was the point, by the way, where I really got annoyed with copyright protection systems and how major labels work. Because what happened is I made this official remix for uh, Chris Brown. And for some reason, the labels were releasing it in the UK first on iTunes. So people in the UK could buy it on iTunes, but not in the rest of the world. So what happened uh, was some people in the UK who are friends of mine bought it and they blogged about it. They were like, oh, there's the Fat Red remix for Chris Brown. It's amazing. You should listen to it. But it wasn't available in the rest of the world. So I had a lot of people coming to me. Hey, I want to buy your remix, but it's not available. I'm like, yep, I, there's nothing I can do about it. But I found this <laughs> incredibly annoying because I thought, hey, people want to listen to my music. But the labels, they won't let them listen to it. Yeah. And so that was also. And then this this is, uh, interesting thing happened. So this small channel called No Copyright Sound uploaded this Foster the People remix for free. And then I got uh, comments on my SoundCloud, The Great Space Butterfly. I was like, what? And then another comment. Yeah, Great Space Butterfly. Yeah, I came from The Great Space Butterfly. And so I Googled it and I found out that it was a YouTube, I think, Let's Play uh, series where they would use the Foster the People bootleg remix as a background music and I realized that, that this video series, YouTube series was driving a lot of traffic um, to my to my SoundCloud so that's a point where I realized that yeah, background music on YouTube can be like a good promotional tool Okay, so you're interfacing with other people, other companies how do you decide ultimately to go totally independent and how do you build even bigger on SoundCloud? And when do you get YouTube involved? Uh, well, there was, first of all, I, I got into trouble with my business partner, <laughs> obviously, because now I had a conflict of interest because I was like pursuing my own artist career. I started playing shows and stuff and I wanted to do more of my own music. But then it's the same time, I had, like other producers. And I was actually my career in LA was really starting. I would like get bigger sessions, you know, like I told you, like BB Rexa back then. Anyway, so with Pete Wentz, they had this duo, Black Cards, I think it was called. So we would get like bigger artists in the studio. And I would, my business partner was really annoyed. So I had to go through this like phase of like saying uh, goodbye to him. And then I was, that was 2013 then already. I was like 32 years old or 33. And I wanted to have a family. And we were in LA, but for us, it was never an option to have family in Los Angeles, also because we wanted to have our family around. So we moved back to Germany. That was the next thing that happened. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, your wife manager, she was with you in L.A.? Yes, exactly. So she's from Göttingen. Um, th- that's a very <laughs> different story. We know each other since we, she was 15 and I was 17, but we were just best friends. And at the time when I moved to LA, uh, so we were not together, uh, just best friends. But at the time when I moved to LA, um, I, uh, offered her to visit me. So I would pay her a visit and then we got together. So she kind of moved to LA when I, started moving to LA so she was there with me we married while I was in a while I was living in LA yeah but after we were married we were like okay come you know we want to have kids and we're not going to have them in LA so yeah um and she was not managing me at that time she only started managing me in 2019 what was she doing in the interim in the US and other yeah yeah she was uh she wanted to become a author like writing novels so she was working on a novel Okay, so you move back to Germany to have kids. Yep. So then what goes on with your career? <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was what, what I was wondering about, like, what's happening now? Um, and what I did, once again, I split up from everybody. So I, so my management got a little slower. They hired, they, the, they had a, they wanted some big artists as clients, which I realized, okay, they're now really priority for them, which was okay. So I split up and said, hey, you know, 
everybody, let's go separate ways. And I split up from the publishing. I split up from everybody. But just sitting in Germany, I still had like some passive income from the stuff that I had released. And I was really wondering, okay, what am I going to do now? And then I said, you know what? I'm just going to try for a year just putting up my own music. Originals this time and see what happens. And that's what I did. And then what happened? What ensued? <laughs> well, um, I focused on uh, on YouTube because I, at some point in the internet, I seen like, where do people find, I think it was in the US, like, where do people find new music? And there was like, I think number one was radio. I don't know, like 30, 36% then was YouTube, 32%. I was like, wow, a lot of people are finding their music on YouTube now. And I already had this experience that um, I would get so much SoundCloud traffic from YouTube. So I thought, okay, cool, I'm going to focus on that. And I made some music, for uh, for example, my songs Windfall and Unity. And I had this thing that I would make music that I liked, but I was like, this is, but this is not really, like, this is not EDM. I'm not sure, like, who's actually going to listen to that? Because I, it's too playful for DJs to play it on a festival. Right, 2013 was like Hardwell and you know David Guetta and everybody. Uh, and I think they're not gonna play this, but yeah, let me just put it out. And yeah, I put it out, and it didn't explode, but I got really good responses. And what happened is, I back then you could see the plays on a YouTube channel. You could see like on a video, you could see over time how the plays would develop. That feature is not around anymore, but it was back then. And what really I could see, so I had, there were those tastemaker channels. Like the first one was Tasty Records, and for example, Mr. Suicide Jeeps. So Tasty Records had, had like I think four hundred thousand subscribers, and they would simply every two days or like three times a week they would upload some music and say, "Hey, here's like new music that you can discover." So I hit up Tasty Tasty Network, this YouTube channel, and I say, "Hey, here I have some." songs maybe you like them they're like yeah cool this is amazing they uploaded it on, on their channel and like i said it didn't explode but I, what i saw like you could see every video how it started really high and then the place would go towards zero and in my songs they started go went a little bit lo lower but then remained on a really high level and slightly started moving up and they put out the next song and that happened again and they put out the next song and it happened again and what also happened is <laughs> I did not put my, at that time, I did not put my songs on iTunes and on Spotify. Everybody had told me, you're not going to make any money there, right? It's so small. Like, it's just, especially on the screen, the Spotify, you make, like, no money. It's not worth the effort. So I didn't put it there, and I didn't put it on iTunes. But then Tasty, the, this YouTube channel, said, hey, we're making a label now. Can we, like, release your music? Say, so, okay, say, cool, let's do it. And I let them release Windfall on a 50-50 split. And then I put out the next song, Xenogenesis, same thing, 50-50 split. And then next song, Never Be Long. And then monthly, I think it was January 2014 then. So I had like been releasing my own music for three or four months now. Said, hey, we have the first numbers coming in. I thought, okay, this is going to be like putting me down. It's probably be like 20 sales, right? It's going to be, but never mind. Okay, what are the numbers? And he's like, yeah, it's 6,000 sales. Like, Oh, that was the moment where I like, wait. <laughs> Everybody said there's no money. So I, I just one song in the first month was like 6,000. So it's like still, uh, I don't know, how much do you make? Like 30 cents uh, per uh, sale. So what's that? Uh, 
1800, right, right. Yeah, 1800, exactly. So I'm, wait, that's not that bad. And then I turned on uh, monetization on my own channel. I remember, I think the first day was like 14 bucks. But I said, wait, if, if you over entire month, this actually makes sense. Yeah. And that was a really fascinating time because I started putting out more music and all the numbers started growing and growing and growing bigger on its own, even when I do didn't put out music. And that was funny. That was the, the time where my daughter was born, February 2015 now. And uh, she had a serious sleeping disorder. Like serious, she would rarely sleep longer than an hour, usually like 30 minutes. Now we know she has like a reflux that her like, she's like the, the acid, acid reflux. From, yeah, acid reflux. Uh, but we didn't know back then. Yeah, so so there was a sleepless time, but not for career reasons. And was really uh, kind of absurd because I was like completely sleep deprived. I would start crying like for no reason, like <laughs> carrying out the 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 garbage uh, and then just simply start crying because I was so sleep deprived. But sometimes I looked at the numbers and like, yeah, everything kept growing and the and the income kept growing. And I remember the time, I think March, March. April around the time. Me and my wife said, hey, wait, if it goes on like that, by the end of the year, we might be have like 10,000 a month income. And it ended up being 20 grand per month. It's simply because it kept growing and growing. And yeah, that's... Yeah, and then I kept putting out songs and then made some experiences with major record companies and with managements. That would be the, <laughs> the next chapter then. Okay. How did you ultimately get five and a half million subscribers on youtube slowly simply <laughs> simply two thousand subscribers a day very very constant growth simply okay so the labels start calling and then yes. what happened well let me say you, you go with tasty's label when you see yeah. how much when you see how much money is involved do you then go to direct or do you stay with tasty well i went direct uh Simply because there were like small things with tasty. The, the so it's it's one person basically back then, right? Or maybe two. Uh, very very small. And he's he's a nice guy and he's fair. But it was just those small things that he wouldn't pay. He with value added tax in Germany. You have it's very taxes in Germany is incredibly complicated. So I needed like a, a certification from his side, but he didn't have his company registered. So, so he couldn't give me that certificate, which made me, I would have to pay additional 20% tax because he didn't have it. Like those small details, those were the reasons why I didn't keep signing with him. Not that I, not the money just because, well, that sort of, those sort of things. Like and he wouldn't pay for the PayPal fees and stuff like that. Um, even though he was a nice guy, but that was where I was like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. It just was a little annoying. And yeah. And then I simply tried putting out a song by myself and discovered TuneCore, simply uploaded it on TuneCore. And I have had a very good reputation now at the different tastemaker channels as well. Like different YouTube channels were asked, asking me, Hey, do you have new songs? We would like to upload them. Yeah, that's what I did. I simply okay. Put so then, music. at what point do managers and labels start calling, and what's the experience there? Uh, I think they started calling after like four, like after I started, I had put out my originals for about half a year. So Ultra Record called and uh, Cloud Nine, and like I, I, and I put them all, like I, I said no all the time. I think like 
15 times or so. I was always like, no, I'm not going to sign. I'm just going to do it independently. That's it. And then at some point I thought, hey, I might get myself a manager because it's so much work with the like administrative stuff and a couple of things that I wanted to do. So I went, went with the management again from New York, LA. They have in both cities. Yeah. And they, they talked me into a record deal again. I mean, it's not their fault, but, uh, because it was always my decision, of course. Um, but they were like, yeah, we have this, uh, universal re music reached out. They had reached out to me before. Right. And I was just straight up. No, not interested. Thank you very much. And then they reached out again from Sweden and they said, Hey, it's very, very great. You should at least meet them and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then I discovered how record labels work. You know, they're, <laughs> they invited me, which was the, the biggest, like the, 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 the biggest upside of the deal was that they invited me to Ibiza to Avicii's last uh, show where he will, he quit touring and then nobody would. No, of course, knew that he would die, but was like, hey, uh, he's going to play his last live show and the, he, because he's going to stop touring. So we want to invite you. So that was amazing. I was in the VIP lounge drinking the record label champagne. And I was meeting in uh, New York with Republic, which was amazing because the first time when I w went to New York was, yeah, finally, or we were always trying to get a record deal, right? Or place artists, play songs. And now they were inviting me to New York. And when they want to sign you at Republic, they're really good at that. Like you, they bring you up in the elevator and they have screens all over the place that say like, welcome the fat rat. And they would play my song in the entire building and they're like, yay, you're the star. Yeah. And yeah, so I, <laughs> I signed for only licensing deal for 10 songs and then realized, yeah, that, that it's a little different once you signed. Next time you come there, they don't play your songs and they also don't put your face on the screens anymore. Um, uh yeah, so that was quite an experience, and now we I almost sued them, but I think I'm still open. Maybe I will, maybe not. We will see. Um yeah, but now I'm independent again, fully independent. And 2019, I, 2018, I think I fired my management and thought I'm going to do everything by myself. And then I had had the idea, which turned out to be re pretty good, to have my wife managing me, uh, which was I think the best decision, at okay. least from. You talk now. about you might sue Universal on what grounds? Uh, on the grounds that they have no, uh, they're not allowed to, to they ha don't have the rights for SoundCloud, right? They're excluded. SoundCloud is excluded in the agreement. What they did is <laughs> they, well, you know, Sweden, I have the agreement with Sweden. They, they made sure they wouldn't claim it on SoundCloud, but then, you know, in the universal system, it gets like sub licensed. And I think some of them still put it in the SoundCloud copyright protection system. So I would upload the song, immediately get a claim on my own song, which then we removed. But recently I found out that the claim was kind of removed, but still the song was administrated by universal was also monetized by Universal and not by me without me knowing it. And it was geo-blocked in almost the entire world. So I was really surprised because one of my most successful songs, Fly Away, uh, did incredibly well on YouTube, did incredibly well on Spotify, and did almost nothing on SoundCloud. And I was like, what's going on with SoundCloud? Is it like the platform falling apart? What's, I thought that would be the case. I recently found out, no, it's the song's geo-blocked in almost the entire world. 
So I was like, hey, remove it, please. And they didn't even answer. <laughs> you know, like I said, you know, once the deal's through, it's, yeah, they're not going to, they're going to treat you differently. Uh, yeah, and they didn't respond. And then I was like, okay, cool. This is like, uh, you're violating the agreement. I'm not going to now terminate the agreement, which was what I did. So I terminated the agreement, which then they, of course, said no. Then suddenly they, re they responded. Yeah, and now we're trying to figure it out. Okay, so... Did they do anything good for you? They tried. I have to say they tried. So there were some people that were really uh, motivated at Universal Sweden. They said like, hey, we really want to get into the like gaming space. And they did this collaboration with the Electronic Sports League. So they put me on those shows like right before the finale of a big Counter-Strike, uh, for example, event or a Dota 2, um, they would put me uh, onto the stage playing a set and the set got really great reactions. They tried that, like ESL tried that before with other DJs and they had like a really pretty bad feedback on that. But since I'm from the gaming space, I kind of knew a little bit what I could do, what would resonate, resonate with the audience. And that went really well and that, that definitely helped me grow and helped me gain an audience, yes. But... When you look at the percentages that they get <laughs> and then how much they help you grow, which you can like kind of measure a little bit, it's uh, it's not a good deal. How much did they help your uh, uh, streams grow? Well, it's hard to tell on the streams, but uh, well, I mean, I think I had an increase when I played those shows. So I had like this plateau before on a certain song and then I played the show. So I had in like... 10 to 20% increase on streams on the YouTube and Spotify and those things. Okay. Did you get any money from them? Yeah, they paid in advance, of course. Okay. So if you look at it at the end of it now, would you have made more money or less money if you'd stayed independent the whole time? Of course, it's always difficult to make those scenarios. But from my from my calculation at the moment, I think I'd have like at least a million more when I, if in case I wouldn't have signed. Okay, so, so saying pr I, presently, how much money are you making in a year? Uh, so revenue, it's about I think about a million. Okay, so you have a new project that's totally independent. Which one do you mean? <laughs> you're putting out like these, these, you have this story album that you're putting out in. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. totally independent? Yes. It's totally independent. And it's even more than that. It's uh, completely controlled by me, which means, which is a really interesting thing because like I said, I'm doing this thing where a lot of, a lot of my music is free to use for creators. Like it's free to use on social media. It's free to use on YouTube. It's free to use most of the stuff. It's free to use on Twitch and stuff. So my approach is that creatives, creators uh, are free to use my music. Um, I think it's also kind of fair uh, to do like that. So to do that, what I realized, it's, it's not that easy. It's not that you simply do not claim. You have to actively not claim because the entire system now is built in a way that it's claiming automatically. And if you don't watch out, it's like, it's like a, a minefield. If you do one wrong step, every, like everything gets claimed everywhere. So yeah, that's a thing that I learned now. So I'm very, very 
careful and I'm very, uh, so what we're doing is like I have the entire publishing control. So I have a publishing company now. I only work with people who can give the songs into my publishing, uh, which has nothing to do with the money. We're paying out 100% on most things like uh, except licensing, which because we do that actively, but the rest, we simply pay them out 100%. It's not that we want to make any money from that, but we have to have control over it. Because once you have another public, you have like, I don't know, Sony or Warner involved and you say, yeah, I don't claim on YouTube, but they'll be like, yeah, but we're going to claim on YouTube. And yeah, there, there goes your strategy and your... Okay, <laughs> so going, going forward, what's the business model? What's the strategy? What's the dream? Yes. Um, so, I, so what I did in this album is we... Oh, what I... What I generally did is started is i i used sci-fi fantasy art art as artworks and together with the artist that i had first jordan grimmer was his name uh we started putting like the same characters and some like objects and stuff into it where and we start telling little stories with the artworks together with the songs and the fans reacted really great to that. They're like, hey, there's a story that's amazing. And they started like discussing the story and discussing the lore and everything. So what I did with this album now is that I took this to the next level and be more conscious about the story that we're telling. So it's a 10-song album and every song's co uh, uh, it's coming out over 10 weeks. So every Friday, one song is coming out together with a new artwork and the artworks together tell a story. Um, and a more obvious story than we told before. Um, the next, the big dream is to uh, take this to the next level. So I'm working on the next album already. And this is supposed to come with a the same thing again. So artworks telling a story, but also with a comic where you have a way more detailed story. So it's kind of a entertainment storytelling process that starts with the music, right? Usually you have like movies, you have the, the story and what you have the pictures first and then you add the music. So it's a little bit the other way around. So you have a story, but then you write the music and then you add the pictures on top. And yeah, the, picture, so, the, the comics, would those be online or physical or both? I think they're going to be both. We have a, a partner that we are working, starting to work with now, and that's the plan to have both. Who's doing the images? Uh, we have some like artists, uh, uh, like candidates at the moment. It's not 100% sure yet. Who, who, who's going to do them? Okay. So obviously your publicist reached out to me about doing this, although we've had contact previously. Let's just assume you made this music and you yeah. posted it on YouTube. Is that enough marketing to make it so people are aware of it will be streamed or you have to do other things? You hired a PR firm, which is spreading the word. So how did you decide to hire a PR firm what is the marketing plan and do you need that to make the thing go at all? Or really is the marketing just the cherry on top? Well, the marketing I would say is the, it's sort of a cherry on top. Uh, it's also getting into new, like, like getting more audience. Um, most. So, so far my career took off just on its own. Um, the best example for that is China. At, I played shows in New York and people came to me after the show and they were like, hey, do you know your music's really big in China? I was like, no, I have no idea. And then I did some research 
And I found out that there's this big platform, which is called NetEase. And over it's like Spotify in, in China. And on the entire platform, two of my songs were in the top 50. And I didn't even know. And the funny thing is, I didn't even release it. There was like just pirated. So, just, so people just grabbed my music, then put it on the platform. But this is the best, best example because I didn't even. So there was z absolutely zero effort from my side. But the music just did its thing. And yeah, now, now I mean, now the situation changed. I have like a team there and everything. Um, but of course, I can never know that for every song because they are. it's like maybe hmm, 20% of my songs, they do that. Where they're just they, they I I always say they grew grow legs, they like they which which for me means so you have a certain point where the song starts right on release day, then it goes down, and if it ever gets over that starting point, that's where I say okay that song really grew legs, so it really uh, it it becomes bigger than at the start, and I think I would say like twenty thirty percent of my songs do that. Okay. So give me some numbers so that people can relate to the twenty or thirty percent that go big. How big are they? Um, they are so the biggest song I think is "Fly Away." It has like hun around hundred thousand plays on Spotify per day, um, which maybe it's not that much for a couple of artists. But the the key is that it's it's now four years old, and it has now hundred thousand plays on on Spotify per day, and that's the the highest it ever got. So it still keeps growing. So the daily plays still keep growing. And that's the same for my song Monody, for example, or The Calling. And yeah, so so this is 100,000 plays. The next one, I think, is probably 80,000 plays. The next one is probably, I don't know, 40,000 plays. A lot of around 40,000. Stronger is also. Stronger started at, I think, 30,000 plays per day when I put it out in 2019. Now it has 80,000, 90,000 plays per day. And what are the cum numbers, cumulative? On Spotify, it's at the moment, I think, 800,000, 850,000, around that. Okay. So what are your biggest tracks on Spotify and how many times have they been streamed? Uh, the the biggest is Fly Away. It has uh, around 100 million plays at the moment. Okay. So you're saying you're getting 800,000 streams a day. Yeah. Okay. On my catalog you, you You talk about your music being big in Vietnam, etc. This is purely organic or you're working it? Um, I mean, I'm working it more now. So the reason, for example, why have, we have this PR company now and more stuff going on is my management now, which is my wife. And it's also the, the attempt to, you know, reach new audiences as well. Um, because it's spreading in a certain community and it's going, a lot of music's going viral, viral there. Not a lot, but like I said, like 20% roughly. Um, it's doing its own thing. Uh, yeah, but you, I mean, you want to keep growing and keep getting bigger, but I could, I could completely stop any marketing, simply put out songs. And if it's the right song, it would still do very well. What kind of marketing are you doing? Uh, yeah. So we have this amazing PR company now. I think they're, we're really, really happy with them. Uh, then we have a, like so, making like, uh, ads now on, on, Reddit ads and YouTube ads and Facebook ads and stuff like that. But all that, that's all my wife. So I, I'm not that much into it. She's like trying to figure out stuff and I think doing a really good job. But I have to say after I, uh, I, after my wife became a manager, I think within one year, my streaming numbers doubled, which they never did 
well in the very beginning of the first, first year that happened but <laughs> but i think in the in the unit when i was signed with universal over the two years roughly i had a growth of 20 percent maybe 30 percent and then i kicked out universe i kicked out my manager my wife started managing me and we had a growth of 100 percent within a year and what about live gigs i placed some uh not a lot also for family reasons i'm very like a very you know family guy uh and you know tour life is not it doesn't go so well to with with family so yeah i played some i played electric forest for example i played the like uh, the small uh, uh venue on webster hall for example uh avalon uh in los angeles and stuff like that i played at the roxy in los angeles for example um but the last tour has been a while i don't even know how long it's ago because of uh, covid and everything and what's the creative process for me uh making songs oh it's making a lot of a lot of songs and throwing away most of it i try to make one new song every day at least like a, what i call a layout uh uh putting out putting together some beats some melodies and stuff and then do it all over again the next day until something sticks with me when i'm like totally fall in love with it because i have to be in love with it to go through the finishing process which can be slow and tedious for me i don't put out a lot of songs well i mean now i'm putting out 10 songs in a row but usually often it has for, for me it's been like three or four songs a year and that was it like three singles a year and that was my year so you're working 10 hours a day or you only work like you know sometimes no, no, no. I, I'm pretty structured. So usually I stand up and I uh, hit the studio immediately. So uh, first thing I do in the morning is like 10, uh, 10 two hours of uh, music production. Uh, then I do workout. Then I do like uh, uh, having breakfast and everything. And then I go back to studio. So it's more and more a morning person now, which I never thought when I started. I was always working late night. But I realized that I'm, you know, there's this thing that you get really productive at late night. and I, a lot of people discover at some point that you're actually even more productive at really early morning when you just it's kind of similar that being close to sleep thing where you're very creative where you're not distracted and everything so yeah i try to be as productive as i can before 12 uh uh, uh before noon and then uh it's business stuff you know and then uh spending time with my daughter and then i usually get back into the studio around evening doing a little bit of office stuff and then also being creative and listening to a lot of music yeah and it's very yeah, yeah very structured and very home-based and also not that crazy <laughs> not so a rock star you say it takes a long time to finish a song how long does it take to finish that, that depends so when it's fast it's around a month uh when it's slow for example my song monody took me five months or every day i was working on it every day for five months what are you doing for five months <laughs> Um, so in the end, you know, a, a song can have like 150 tracks. And for every of those 150 tracks, I have like 10 other tracks that I made. And I was like, okay, I, it could be done better, whatever it might be, you know, just going through all the options that you have, like, okay, this step could be like this step sound could be a guitar. And I'm trying with the guitar sound. Like, oh, maybe it should be more brass and I'm putting in brass. No, maybe it should be more orchestra. And then I put in orchestra. And so yeah, just going through a lot of ideas that I have until I th have the one where I'm like, okay, this is the, the right one. But you're doing it all yourself on electronic equipment. Yeah, sometimes I use the this platform uh, that is owned by uh, Spotify. Now I think it's called Sound Better, where you can hire pretty good musicians online. Uh, so I'm 
for example, for strings or uh, guitars and or uh, I produce it in the computer and then I send it out and I, they record it and send it back. And if you, how do you know when it's finished and can you tell <clears throat> when it's done what tracks are going to resonate most? If I can tell what tracks are going to resonate most, uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, usually I have a pretty good feeling a lot of times, but sometimes, sometimes I'm very wrong. Simply sometimes, sometimes I have a track where like that I'm like, okay, I'm going to put it out where it's like barely good enough for me to put it out. For example, my track fly away, which then totally blew up. That sometimes happens. What rarely happens is that I love a song and then it doesn't do well. I kind of had this one time I song Mayday. I thought it would be really outstanding. It did well, but not as good as I expected it. But that rarely happens. And then most of the time, I kind of know where it's, where it's going to be. So how do you know when a song is finished? Simply when there's nothing left to change. At some point, I'm like, okay, no, I have like all ideas that I have is there's nothing bothering me there are no ideas left when like oh, okay i should try this like i said it's not that i i you know with today's way of working you change something and you can always change it back so every idea i have i would try it until at some point i have like okay now i have absolutely no idea what could be done better and, and nothing's bothering me anymore okay the other thing i notice in your music unlike traditional edm is there's more melody yeah are you conscious of that Yes, very much. Uh, I just, <laughs> I had a time, I was making like beats, you know, uh, EDM. And also when I moved to LA, I was like, okay, I'm going to do the beats and we are going to have the top liners. And what really was interesting for me in Europe is this, this thing. Also, I was working with Swedes. They would spend so much time on the melodies and then they would write some random lyrics within 10 minutes. And then I moved to the US. And they would write the melodies in 10 minutes and then spend, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would spend hours on the lyrics, which was really fascinating, which I realized, okay, lyrics are important because I'm from Germany, right? And we, when you grow up, you don't even understand the English lyrics and it's just, you need some punchlines in it. But I realized in the US that there can be a lot of deep meaning and lyrics can be really meaningful and they're really important and everything. But what bothered me was that they spent so little time on the melodies. They, the top liners were more like lyricists. And then I said, okay, now I'm, I'm simply going to do the melodies. And when the top liners come to the studio, I'm going to have some melodies uh, prepared. And my business partner back then, he was like, no, don't do it. Like, you, can you even do that? And I started studying melodies. I started with a lot of Max Martin, for example. I listened to a lot of music, his songs, and I analyzed everything, and I transcribed a lot of stuff. And then I started doing it. At first, my business partner said it's not good. But then I think after two weeks, no, it was actually the first session where I insisted that we use my melody. And we finished the song, we sent it around, and we Im immediately got Jason Derulo to record it. And was like, okay, maybe I should keep making the melodies. Uh, yeah, and ever since, I just uh, worked on it very consciously. And one big inspiration for me has been Avicii as well. As well. That was the incredible thing, how he incorporated melodies into EDM music. And you have this 10-song album, and if it takes you so long to finish a track, how long did it take you to do the 10-song album? <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit faster because I consciously decided I'm going to do some album songs. So before I had a really high 
bar that a song had to get over to actually get released. Uh, which also my wife said, hey, you have so many great songs that are really good. Maybe they're not a single, but you so should still release them. So that was simply, I said, okay, I'm going to do an album. I'm also going to release some songs that are more experimental, which are not a single, which probably will not stand on their own, where I think like, okay, they're going to grow legs and they're going to do big things on their own. But still people might, a lot of people might simply still enjoy listening to them. To them. And yeah, some songs just took like two weeks. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't that long. Okay, do you consciously sit in your studio and say, I want to make a hit single? Sometimes. <laughs> Not all the times. But yeah, I, I sit there and then I, I think that and then I realize it's completely blocking me creatively. And then I try to figure it out and, and then I do weird stuff. And then I think, oh, I'm doing completely weird stuff. I should focus more on making a hit single. And that's kind of a cycle where it always moves. And once in a while randomly a good song comes out of that process okay if i snap my fingers and we're in a perfect world what does your career look like what's the ultimate dream i had this question recently which record like which uh yeah which which like guinness world record would you like to uh break have and i simply said i would like to have the most streamed song in the world and i think that would still be a, a goal for me simply Number one on, on every single chart. Okay, well, I hope you reach that. This has been Thanks. fascinating. I mean, uh, you're very articulate, and you know where you're going, and you experimented a lot in the American way to get where you are today. Yeah, I, I, it was very beneficial for me to be in the U.S., I have to say. Right. I learned so much there. Okay, it's been great talking to you. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsex. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.